And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. Oh, and don't forget about the Wednesday edition. That's at 9 a.m., again, streaming at richarddugan.com. We put these interviews or these conversations up uh, on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. They call them podcasts. I call them conversations. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews, and I hope that you will do just that. Subscribe, click the notification so that when I do put up a new interview, a new conversation, you'll be able to uh, listen in and uh, find out what's out there, what's going on, who's helping to try to make this a better place for everybody like our guest here on the program. We also ask that if you can support us financially, we would be so gratefully appreciative. We have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And then we ask you to spend some time going within. You know, it was years ago, I used to think, there's got to be some place on this planet where I can go and nobody will be able to find me and and I can be uh, secluded and isolated and just, just be by myself. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. If I can find it, then so can other people. So I realized as I began to, of course, read uh, the great wisdom teachings, if you will, ancient wisdom teachings, I found out there is a place on this planet and it's within myself. It's within me as it is within you. Nobody, i telling you, right. I don't care if you have AI or someone has transferred their consciousness into a computer. They can't get into that quiet, peaceful, calm, still place. So spend some time listening to that still small voice. With all of that being said, uh, it is really a pleasure to have our very special guest here on the program talking about her latest work, Lisa Doggett's my guest, lisadoggett.com. And that's spelled, by the way, L-I-S-A and then D-O-G-G-E-T-T. And again, we will be linked to her website. She is an MD, MPH, uh, family physician, author. Her book is entitled Up the Down Escalator, Medicine, Motherhood and Multiple Sclerosis. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on, Richard. It's really great to be here. Why is uh, I, I'm 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 I looked at your I mean going up the down escalator. Uh, I get as a person, you know, it's sometimes we feel that way, or or as the uh, mythology is, you're we're trying to push that rock. I believe it was Sisyphus who was trying to push the rock up the hill, uh, and so I can relate to that. But and medicine, uh, how what I I can't relate to motherhood. And thankfully, I don't. I can't relate to multiple sclerosis. Uh, first of all, um, how do these three items in your title relate to this whole business of up the down staircase? Uh, up the down staircase. That's a play. Up the down escalator. I knew I was going to do that at least once. <laughs> well, thank you. So, up the down escalator refers to my challenges as a physician, a mother, and unfortunately as a patient to try to keep going and pushing forward despite at many times feeling like everything was against me. Uh, and I've realized that that wasn't the case, but I certainly have had a lot of challenges along the way, uh, learned a lot from my struggles. And I think uh, I've kind of turned things around so that I'm going up with the escalator now, but uh, at many times I felt felt like I was trying to fight it. Hmm. And we kind of do that, don't we? We, we instead of... I like to use the analogy. I do like your analogy with the escalator, but I like to use the analogy of a river uh, and it flows in one direction. And what I suggest to people is if you're going to go out on that river, which I suggest you do, just allow the currents to carry you, you know? So in other words, go with the flow in your life. And that's kind of what you're talking about here. When stuff comes along, because uh, what is it? Uh, the, the, there's. I, I'm not going to remember the sayings exactly. Paraphrasing here that uh, it, it is not uh, the events in your life that define you. It's how you act, or in some cases react, 
to those events? Well, I think that's a good, that's a very good point. And, and certainly attitude and response to challenges is uh, very, very important in, in determining the outcome. Uh, I think that it's easier said than done. Uh, many times when you face a challenge, uh, especially if it's really unexpected and seems to throw you off your life path, it can be hard to write yourself. And I certainly faced that when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is a disease of the central nervous system. Uh, when I was 36 years old, MS is known for causing disability, especially in young adults. It can lead to mobility challenges. A lot of people do end up using assistive devices like wheelchairs. It can lead to a lot of other symptoms like really incapacitating fatigue, visual problems, uh, numbness, mobility challenges I mentioned, but balance as well, bowel and bladder problems, um, depression, sleep problems. So MS can really cause some significant challenges and does for many people. Um, and then that's what I expected uh, was going to happen to me when I was diagnosed uh, at you know, a young age while I was running a clinic for people without insurance and raising two kids under five. Oh, good heavens. <clears throat> two kids, huh? Uh, my folks got you beat. They had six. And at wow. one point, I'm sure... All of us were under 10 <laughs> at one time, all six of us. <laughs> I cannot oh, imagine. This oh, is really amazing. my heavens. And the amazing thing, too, is that uh, in spite of all of that, living in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom, I'm going to say twelve to 1,300-square-foot house, we all survived. Uh, we all came out of it unscathed for the most part, you know, <laughs> and did well. But uh, raising two kids, uh, I, raising one kid, I don't even know what that's like because I don't have any kids. But uh, you have written this wonderful book. This is sort of uh, what, like a memoir of triumph in the face of uh, terrifying diagnoses. And sometimes we we get that stuff. And for example, I <clears throat> and again, I never thought of these things. I was diagnosed with glaucoma in my left eye many years ago. Eventually, I lost the sight in my left eye. Had a lens, ampl lens implant in my right eye. Thankfully, I am now driving. Then diagnosed with high blood pressure or hypertension, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, type 2 diabetes. I was like, what the heck? My mother tells me, well, the uh, hypertension's hereditary. I says, what? I don't want it. <laughs> Give it back to my ancestors. Was the it, it, are, is this situation that you have been facing for what? What has it been? Ten years? Uh, almost four. Almost fourteen years. Fourteen years. Uh, is that? Have you done research into it? Or I'm sure you have. Uh, where is it? Is it hereditary? Uh, do we even have any clue as to what the uh, what the source and or cause is? So that's the million dollar question and and really more than a million dollars have been have been spent trying to figure out some of those answers. Uh the causes of MS are unknown. Uh there are a lot of theories. There's increasing evidence that the Epstein-Barr virus, the virus that causes mono, uh might be linked to uh multiple sclerosis. It's it's looking pretty likely that there is a connection there. But it's not a genetic condition. It's not inherited in a kind of blue eyes, brown eyes sort of fashion. Um, having MS in the family does increase the risk for others. Uh, first degree relatives have about a one in twenty five chance of getting MS. Like my my kids have about a you know a four percent chance of getting MS. Um, but uh, odds are really good they won't get it. Um, I have no family history before me of MS at least nothing that we know of. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really kind of came out of the blue. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and <laughs> it reminds me of a conversation I had with my father years ago where I was, we were all sitting around the dinner table and I made the comment about how, you know, I, I, I choose not to have children. I, I have been uh, neutered. And um, uh, because I didn't want to pass on the hereditary, uh, visual problems to uh, future generations, to which my father responded, Richard, you do know that if I had made that decision, you wouldn't be here. And I said, yeah, I know. I understand that. And I appreciate the fact that you brought me into this world. <clears throat> but this diagnosis, and, and if I may ask, how old are your kids? My kids now are 15 and 18. Okay. So you were not diagnosed until... 
uh, what if I'm if I'm doing my they, math right? They were they were born... little. They were two and four at the time of my diagnosis. Right. So you got your diagnosis after you had your kids. That's right. Do you think that you would have made a different decision? I mean, granted, the percentage is low. You just said, you know, 4%. That's that's a small percentage, but it's still there. Would you have possibly made a different decision? And this kind of goes into the dovetails into the broader question of decisions about your life, your future, your career, your relationship with your husband, who, by the way, if I'm correct, is a pediatric uh, doctor. That's right. Yes. Well, I, I think it's really a difficult decision for people to make, uh, you know, if they just want to have kids after they're diagnosed with a chronic condition. Uh, for me, fortunately, I didn't have to make that decision uh, with MS. I think for me, the issue was less worried about passing it on to my children and more about would I be able to care for them? Would I be physically capable of driving them around and chasing them around to the house when they were little? Um, and, and fortunately I've been able to do those things, but I think that would have been my bigger question. Uh, you know, fortunately with MS treatments have improved significantly over the last two decades, three decades, and especially over the last five or six, seven years, uh, so that we now have treatments that can almost halt the disease. in a lot of us, um, again, it can still be very devastating for a number of people, but for many people, um, the condition is very treatable. And people do, women do fine with pregnancy in many cases and have successful um, outcomes. Uh, kids are normal. Kids don't usually get MS. Uh, so I think it, it probably would have been a, a reasonable choice for me to have kids um, after my diagnosis, but I, I am kind of glad I didn't have to make that choice. Oh, yeah. Nobody really wants to. And uh, I now can see the connection between medicine, motherhood, and multiple sclerosis. <laughs> Up the Down Escalators, the title of the book, Lisa Doggett. And lisadoggett.com. Lisa Doggett's my guest, and you are listening, my friends, to tell me your story. I'm Richard Dugan, and this is a pleasure to uh, talk with Lisa Doggett, who has uh, written this wonderful book called Up the Down Escalator Medicine, Motherhood, and Multiple Sclerosis. Um, let's get into an area now where we like, I like to define terms. <clears throat> I, I know what multiple is, and uh, you've got sclerosis, which leads me to believe that there's a multiplicity of different kinds of sclerosis. What is sclerosis for starters? So sclerosis is scarring and it refers to the damage that occurs to myelin. Myelin is the coating of nerve cells that acts as a sort of insulation. Uh, when myelin is damaged, the central nervous system can't communicate with the rest of the body as well. Um, you sort of think about it as if your, your insulation around a, a, a wire was uh, was gone. It just just doesn't work as well, and so um, you know that's why it can lead to these various manifestations I mentioned. Hmm. Is uh, aside from medicine and uh, possibly therapy, and I haven't talked with my sister about this, and she also has uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, is is technology? moving in a direction, aside from medicine, medical technology, certainly, uh, that is providing, um, I don't know, not so much prosthetics, because you still have all your limbs, but ways in which uh, they can help you to um, maybe rewrite the, I don't, uh, they say you can rewrite the neural pathways in the brain. I don't know that you can do that with nerves in terms of, um, Redirect like like electric companies can redirect power when there's a problem in a particular sector, a particular area. Is there any technology that's doing anything like that? Or is this something that once you have it, it kind of affects what all the nerves? Well, it doesn't affect all parts of the body um, at, you know, equally at the same time. There are episodes where uh, certain parts of the central nervous system are damaged. Um, mm -hmm. Fortunately, it's not the entirety at the same time. Um, and there are different kinds of MS. So some people like me have relapsing and remitting MS. In fact, that's about 85% of people where you have periods where a certain part of your brain or spinal cord is damaged, but then you get better. And then there's about 15% of people that have a more progressive form of the disease. And that is where you don't have these periods of remission and you tend to accumulate disability over time. Hmm. Uh I know that for myself, and I don't, uh, well, let me back that question up. What are some of the early symptoms, if you will, that 
if, you know, and again, I don't want people to become hypochondriacs necessarily, but what about some of the early symptoms that would trigger, you know what, I better go see a doctor? That is a really good question. And it's a tough question to answer because MS can have so many different symptoms. So it's very difficult to diagnose. And many people go months, even years without getting a firm diagnosis, especially because as I mentioned, there's remitting MS so that they may have a relapsing or you know, worsening of symptoms, but then they get better and they think, oh, I don't need to do anything about it. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people are missing out on treatment because if we start treatment early and we recognize MS early, the risk of progressing to a to a more disabling form of MS is is much less with treatment. Um, but you know, I think that those early symptoms are things like visual changes. Um, there's a condition called optic neuritis, which can lead to really serious visual problems. That's commonly seen in people with MS, and that's a frequent presentation for people when they're first diagnosed. Other symptoms include really unexplained numbness or weakness in legs, arms, other parts of the body. Um, Other visual problems can occur as well. I had double vision, which was really bizarre. Um, Didn't have an explanation for that. Um, and, And I think that when you have kind of unusual neurologic symptoms without another explanation, it's important to see see a doctor and really press for a diagnosis. Um, It it can sometimes be very hard to figure out. I I worry, you know, I could have missed MS in patients that I saw because it's just something that presents in so many different ways. And it's often not on our radar. My original symptom was dizziness and dizziness can be caused by a dozen or more things. Um, and, And so that's not something that's very specific for MS, even though that was really that and continues to be my main symptom. Mm. What's the history of multiple sclerosis? Does it go back to the beginning of man or is there a period of time uh, in that maybe it was after the industrial revolution and maybe who knows, there's a connection there. You know, I don't know enough about the history. I know it's been around for at least, uh, you know, many hundreds of years. We've known about it for over a hundred years. Um, it, it was first described, uh, I believe, in the 1800s, but I don't know enough about the history. Okay. Uh, and um, what about, uh, certainly we could talk about your doctors. I'm sure they're doing a fabulous job in terms of treating you and Uh, I'm sure that there uh, is research ongoing. I'm not sure how well it's funded. I hope it's funded well. Uh, I wish that uh, we didn't have to categorize. Uh, There aren't enough people with this problem for us to even research it yet. When it reaches a million, that's when we'll start to search. And it's sad. And the same thing with medications. You know, pharmaceutical industry is not going to, if if you're the only one with it, they're not going to research a medication to help you because it's not in their profit it's not in their profit loss uh, benefit kind of thing but let's talk getting away from all of that how about the support system the support team certainly initially in addition to yourself because you sound like you're a very optimistic individual uh and you've got a lot that you still want to accomplish um you've got your husband who is there to support you as well. And I'm sure as your kids have grown, they have also been there to support you. How about outside the family itself? I'm so glad you asked because, you know, Richard, I think having a strong support circle is really one of the most important things that anyone with a chronic condition can can do. And I've been very fortunate to have that. Um, You know, I do have my husband and my kids and they are very helpful, but I also have a strong support system with a lot of friends and family nearby. Um, I think that you know, in the early days after my diagnosis, I can't imagine what how I would have even gone through each day without them. I was struggling so much uh, just from a psychological standpoint, in addition to physically um, dealing with dizziness. Um, at one point, I was bed bound because I couldn't, I had a spinal tap and got really sick afterwards. Um, and was very, very debilitated. So having that support circle, uh, friends were bringing meals, taking my kids for play dates. My husband was still working, but he was able to get some support from his colleagues so that he was able to be more available to me. My parents live nearby. My sister lives across town. They have been incredibly helpful. 
And that support circle is so vital. I saw that with many of my patients when they lacked a support circle, it was, it was very, very difficult for them to get the care they needed and for them to do well. Mm. Well, I know that my sister uh, and anybody who's got some kind of debilitating condition, um, they, they, um, they, surround themselves. I mean, we've got a pretty good sized family uh, in addition to, I'm sure the, 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 uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, oh, it's not rehab. It's, um, a physical education, a physical education, uh, physical, um, physical therapy, therapy. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to have you as my thesaurus here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got something else going on. It has nothing to do with what, uh, what you're dealing with, but, uh, um, and I find it it uh, very interesting uh, uh, how some people will surround themselves. Other people will move as far away from others, either be out of shame or even pride. I don't need your, I don't take charity, you know, kind of thing. Do you run into folks like that in your practice and who are dealing with this, this and other conditions who... Yeah, that's a diagnosis. That's fine and all. Okay, see ya. Here's your, here's your, you know, here, I'll pay your, pay the bill and I'm out of here because I don't need anybody's help. When in fact, they would do so much better if they opened their hearts, their minds, their awareness and so forth and began to receive the support <clears throat> that they so richly deserve. Absolutely. You know, I think we tend to, you know, our society tends to make us think that we need to be very strong and it's not strong to reach out for help and to seek help. And, and I kind of felt some of that when I was first diagnosed, I think I was like, no, I can do this. I don't need any help. I'm fine on my own, but I learned really fast that I did need to seek help from others. I've had patients though, that, that don't either don't have that support circle or who feel really strongly that they need to uh, try to do it all themselves. And I think that's a real challenge. Everybody has different situations though. Everyone has different upbringings that may value, uh, you know, self uh, independence uh, more than, more than others who are taught that it's okay to ask for help. Um, and other people are in situations where they can't reveal their diagnosis, so with MS and with many other conditions, there can be a stigma attached to that. I, I see that especially in patients with mental health problems, unfortunately, where they're depressed or they have physical PTSD, for example, and they can't uh, share that with other people because they're concerned about losing a job, losing a friend, their family not supporting them. Um, that's incredibly unfortunate. Um, and I, I hope I encourage those patients to find at least someone that they can confide in to have someone that can support them and be a part of kind of share that burden. It's mm -hmm. really important to have support. Lisa Doggett's my guest. Lisa Doggett.com is her website and the book is entitled, ladies and gentlemen, it is entitled up the down escalator medicine, motherhood, and multiple sclerosis, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host here on the program as we bring you new paradigms for a new world and choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I don't know how, <clears throat> I guess I'm going to find out here in a moment, how um, in touch with your inner, inner life, your inner world, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program about encouraging people to go within to listen to that still small voice and uh, case in point, I was I was um, talking with a guest, uh, and he had had uh, a majority of his stomach removed due to stomach cancer, and we got to talking about all of these different things, and we got into an area that I, I'm curious about with you if you've even pondered this at all. I asked him. I says, "Do you know why you had uh, stomach cancer?" And I'm talking on a more metaphysical or spiritual level because. There are those who will say that certain conditions represent certain uh, certain aspects that are causing the disease. It's not to say that if you've resolved that particular uh, trauma or conflict that the disease disease goes away, but at least you now understand, oh, and he was sharing about his upbringing and how his parents made him feel as he would sit at the dinner table and eat. And, um, you know, and he gave his example. Have you looked at that at all from a more, as I say, metaphysical um, perspective, uh, the symbolism of muscular, uh, muscular, multiple sclerosis and what that means? Why do you have multiple sclerosis? 
So that's certainly a question I think many of us ask when we're diagnosed with an unexpected chronic condition. Uh, I call MS my life sentence with MS. I, I'm stuck with this forever. And I, I've definitely asked why me uh, early on and continue sometimes to go, why did I get this? I don't mm -hmm. understand. I was healthy. I was a health nut. I was exercising and eating well and doing everything that I told my patients to do. So I didn't understand why I got sick. And I have to say, I, I still don't understand why me, but I also think that I've learned a lot from this condition and I try to, you know, maybe that's the reason that I, I needed to gain this wisdom. I needed to be able to share this with my book and come out and, and help other people be vulnerable to seek that support circle, uh, to be comfortable in their own skin and understanding that, you know, just because they have a chronic condition doesn't mean that their life is any less important and that they can't do, you know, be active and, and lead, uh, you know, reach their goals and be successful. I was married for 15 years to a blind woman. Uh, and uh, we have since gone our separate ways. Uh, but she was always angry. Angry because the rest of the world wouldn't conform to her way of life. And it's like, I, I kept trying to tell her, I said, it doesn't work that way. Um, we as human beings, we adapt, we adjust. Uh, I never even thought anything of of my uh, low vision in my left eye and 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 2200 vision in my right eye as a kid growing up i wore the thick glasses i bicycled everywhere in phoenix uh you know i didn't it wasn't even a question of thinking about it i, I didn't think about it i just did it you know it was, i'll show them i will bicycle everywhere and uh, risk my life and so forth and no i it, it was just it was just what i did so now here you are <clears throat> uh and uh you're dealing with this and yet you continue to practice, don't you? And you continue to, I'm sure you continue your, uh, your education, even if it might, even if it might be uh, informal, it may not be in a classroom or I don't know, maybe you do take uh, refresher courses and so forth, but you haven't let this stop you in any way, shape or form. I appreciate your sharing your story. I think you were resilient, maybe even without knowing it or, or even being able to call it that, but you clearly didn't let it get you down. And, and I've tried to make sure that MS doesn't stop me. Uh, in fact, in some ways, I think it's helped me to do more. Uh, I've really taken on a lot of physical challenges. I bike the MS 150, which is a bike ride from Austin to College Station, Texas. It's over 160 miles. And over two days. And I do that as part of the National MS Society's fundraising uh, effort every spring. Um, I've taken on a triathlon. I did a, a half Ironman triathlon this spring in, in April. Um, and I've really also embraced, as you said, some other career challenges. So right now I'm studying to be board certified in lifestyle medicine, in addition to family medicine. I'm already board certified in family medicine, but this is a, a way for me to learn more about all of the healthy habits we can take on to improve our uh, overall health, reduce chronic disease, because I say one can, one chronic condition is more than enough. Uh, and I really <laughs> want to try to keep from getting anything else and, and take take good care of myself as well as my patients. When my wife was died, my, my present wife was diagnosed in 2001 with a rare form of fallopian tube cancer. Uh, she was going through the chemo. She overheard some people in the room where she was having the chemo administered. They said, well, you know, if you have like two or three successive marker tests uh, uh, that are right in the range you're supposed to be normal, then you can stop your chemo. So she goes to the doctor, her oncologist, and she asks him about that. And he says, well, I'm not sure what they were referring to, but here's the thing. Um, if you were to stop chemo now, regardless of what your markers are, there's a 70% a chance that you'll have a recurrence. It'll, it'll come back. And the first thing that went through my mind, this deals with this lifestyle medicine that you're talking about. The first thing that went through my mind was, okay, this is a rare form. I, I was like, at that time, it was only 1,200 women at that point had had this. And I had wow. a friend of mine that I worked with whose mother had it. And I thought she was dead. So I said, so how long did she live? She's, oh, she hasn't, she's still alive. It's been nine years, he says. And this was back in 2001. So my first question uh, to the oncologist, or I didn't actually put this to him, but it was in my mind. Okay, I want all the records 
of the 100% of the people who uh, came down with this. And I want to compare the 70% who didn't survive. They they succumbed to that cancer. And then the, the lifestyles of the 30%. What did they eat? What did they drink? Where did they live? How did they live? What kind of work did they do? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because the thing that really galls me about medicine that does seem to be changing, and I'm sure you're going to be part of this change, is we're all individuals. And I realize that for high for, for blood pressure, for example, normally is what is it? Uh, 120 over 80? Yes, less than 120 over 80. But we're all different. You know, and I even told that to my doctor when he says you have high blood pressure. And of course, mine was like, I think my high was 180, 182 over 110 or something like that, which immediately he, uh, my wife says I was in the stroke zone and I'm going, Oh, really? I've never been here before. Uh, it's fine now, but we're individuals and, you know, and we move around. I mean, I'm, I was, I'm originally from Phoenix. I live in Santa Barbara. I don't know about you. You're in Austin now. That's right. Yes. I don't know if you started out there or not, but they're finding uh, environmental causes to a lot of things that people are suffering through, uh, and the list goes on. So I find that fascinating. That whole study that 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 is that's relatively new, isn't it? There's been a real under, increasing understanding of both environmental impacts on health of you know everything around us as well as what are called the social determinants of health. And environment is a component of that, but the social determinants of health include, you know, uh, our resources, our, our neighborhoods, the environment in which we live, work, play, uh, go to school. Um, those social determinants of health are often impacted a lot by um, income um, and, and even um, ethnic and racial um, disparities can, can play into that. But we know social determinants of health impact about 80 to 90% of our health outcomes uh, compared to only 10 to 20%, which is uh, affected by our healthcare um, that's provided by a doctor. So really our social determinants, our environment is even more important than the medical care we receive. Mm. Well, I know that I've kind of, and I, maybe it's a guy thing, uh, not really been thrilled with going to the doctor because it's like taking your car to the mechanic. Okay, I have this problem. I hear this squeak in the back. And the next thing you know, you've got a bill that's the size of Montana uh, of things that you didn't ask about. I just wanted that checked in the back of the car. And now you're telling me I've got a bad alternator. My transmission needs to be rebuilt. Uh, I need a new head gasket. Uh, the tires need to be changed. And the list goes on. And it's like, it's medicine is like that sometimes too. You go in for one thing <laughs> and then they they run all a battery of tests. But by the same token, I'm wondering if technology is getting to the point where kind of like Star Trek, you know, some of that stuff with the medical area where you lay down on the table and it just does a complete scan. It does all of the tests. I mean, do you know that I don't even know what my blood type is? And yet I've had blood drawn like you wouldn't believe, but I understand that's a separate, that's a separate test that you have to ask for. And I'm going, really? Okay. Uh, maybe it's in um, my, I'll have to find my baby book that my mother gave me. Maybe it lists it in there. I don't know. Uh, that that's a frustration for a lot of people. And I'm wondering, did they stay focused? Because you said before, some of the symptoms you were experiencing, like the dizziness, could be explained by a lot of maybe you're anemic, maybe you didn't, you're not eating, you're not eating enough, right? Right. Nour no, nourishing absolutely. foods. Uh, maybe you've got a gas leak in the house. Maybe a carbon dioxide, or again, any number of things. Um, do you think that our technology, from the the environmental standpoint, and I'm not talking environmentalism here, I'm talking about you know, where we live and work and play. Uh, do you think that in this study that you're in about lifestyle medicine is going to reveal an awful lot about, um, I don't know about you, but I grew up as a kid eating dirt. I mean, not actively per se, but you know, we'd get dirt in our mouths when we we're digging holes, when we we're digging tunnels for our, our, our army buddies and our Tonka toys and stuff. We played in the grass. We rolled around and got itchy and all those things. 
And aside from the things I've mentioned already, I'm feeling great. I'm 17. Uh, of course, the body is 63, but that's another story. So, I, you know, I think that our technology is helping us better understand so much of ourselves. Uh, you know, our, we've mapped the human genome. We're understanding medical knowledge is just growing by leaps and bounds on a daily basis. In fact, it's impossible to keep up as a doctor. But I think lifestyle medicine is incredibly important. We know it's connected with a variety of chronic conditions, including two that you mentioned, hypertension and diabetes. Um, those are very much impacted by lifestyle choices. Um, and, and there's a whole field of medicine that's growing to understand how we can help people to make better choices that also fit with their with their own lifestyle and their own values so that we're not imposing you know, restrictions and values on, on people, but helping them understand what they want and then to achieve that. Um, that's really what lifestyle medicine is about and hopefully avoiding medications in many cases to control uh, conditions and prevent conditions again through those healthy choices. Oh, I lost your sound. There we go. Click that button. And we're talking yeah. with Lisa Doggett and lisadoggett.com, the uh, website will be linked to it as well. And the book entitled Up the Down Escalator, Medicine, Motherhood and Multiple Sclerosis. And you, my friends, are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and Lisa Doggett is my guest. And we are uh, in the weeds, so to speak, or uh, maybe even further than that, because it's something that needs to be discussed. I mean, yes, obviously your book uh, dealing with the medicine motherhood and, and, and multiple sclerosis, but we're, we're broadening it, broadening it out considerably. As I said before, you know, I grew up in the sixties and uh, as a kid, single digits. And I mean, I, I, I think back on those times, especially since the passing of my father and my eldest sister and um, think about those times Back there on, and I, I can I can speak to this now. Um, I was living in Phoenix on what was called Hubble Street. I don't know why, but I loved that name, uh, H U B B E L L. It was just so easy to spell, and and all of that good stuff. And it was a great little street. It was one of those um, streets that went dotted line across the city, because you know it would start here and end. And we had T sections at each end of the street, so we could play in our street because we lived sort of in the middle. And if cars turn, they had to turn. So as soon as, all right, hey, car, everybody out of the street. And we'd get out of the street. They'd go by. We'd get back out in the street and play. Uh, to my father's consternation, we'd dig a bunch of holes in his backyard to play. My brother and I built these wooden forts that were um, anything but up the code. Let me tell you, uh, they were rickety and dangerous. I stepped on more nails than I can uh, I can think of. I'm pretty sure I've had I had a, uh, maybe one or two tetanus shots <laughs> at the time. And look at me today. Yes, hypertension. Mother says it's hereditary. It's in the genes. Okay, uh, I'll I'll accept that. High blood sugar. I'm what? I don't know if that's hereditary or not. I'm still working on trying to get that under control again. Uh, it's like I've had it and everything was fine. And then all of a sudden, following my father's passing uh, this year, my sister's uh, last year, my blood sugar, I for some reason, I cannot get it down. Everything I do, I take the medication. I'm trying something new that's more natural, a uh, cinnamon. And I'm, I'm trying that every day to see if that will help. But um, vision, I'm driving. so And that vision is still stable from, as far as I can tell, the day that I had that lens implant. But other than that, you know, I'm, I don't think I could run a marathon. I could run a short one, maybe 26 feet. <laughs> Do you find that a lot of your patients, they struggle, I'm sure, as they get older with the frustration of not being able to do, and sometimes they'll do some of these things and actually they can do more harm to themselves. Sure. I think we have to recognize our limits as we age. I know I just turned 50. I understand it. I feel it. Uh, it I, it's not as easy to do a lot of the things I used to do. And, and that's that's a normal part of aging. And I think we have to push ourselves to keep being as active as we can be, and certainly to continue to be as healthy with our choices as we can be. But we also have to recognize our limitations because as you said, if you push yourself beyond those limits, you can do more harm than good and end up having to get you know, uh, surgery or, uh, end up with an injury. Yeah. 
I wonder if somewhere down the road, and again, I'm in my early 60s. I don't know if in my 70s or 80s, I'll need to have uh, 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 maybe a new knee put in or something. Because uh, when I was a kid growing up, I was bicycling everywhere. That's rough on the knees regardless, because it's a constant hinging, hinge movement that's over and over and over again. Um, I I don't know about the hips. I mean, I hear stories of friends of mine who are my age or older. And they go through these procedures, some of them great success. In other words, oh, my God, I have to go back again because it hurts so much. And they got to fix this and that and the other or or they use the wrong material, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's certainly what, what was it I heard uh, not long ago that um, um, elderly life is not for uh, the weak, something along those lines that <laughs> you have to be very courageous to be uh to be willing to go through old age uh so um i suppose we all are in that you're not even close to that yet i'm fast approaching my father lived to be almost 92 years old wow. and quite honestly and uh, i'm i'm certain that the reason that he went was because he he just couldn't stand the fact that he had lost his eldest daughter uh so he chose um, and they diagnosed this the Saturday before his passing. I don't know why they hadn't diagnosed it before. Uh, Parkinson's and uh, onset dementia. And he only lived five days more after the diagnosis. Wow. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, I get it. You, you, he, he really didn't want to be here. Do you find that there are people who get to that point? And did you ever get to that point? I know you said you had your moments where... You just don't want to be here anymore because this is too hard. <laughs> I think it's normal for many of us at times to just say, gosh, why? Why do I have to keep doing all of this? Why am I here? Um, and, and I, you know, I think that we have to re respect that feeling at times. And yet, you know, we have to also keep in mind all of the reasons that we are here and the people that we that depend on us um, and that we, we all have a purpose and, and try to find, you know, what that purpose is and, and keep moving forward. For me, it's always been important to have some kind of a goal. So, uh, you know, for people that are just struggling with why am I here? I think that's a really important question to try to answer. I do think everyone has a purpose and everyone uh, can, can find that, but sometimes it does take a lot of introspective uh, searching. Well, I know I've been doing a lot of that lately, not because of my conditions, but because of uh, relatives leaving the planet, you know, uh, yeah. not as much with my eldest sister, more so with my father. And um, it's uh, well, it you know, what's interesting is, is that he's happy and he's out of that body. He couldn't see well. He couldn't hear well. Had he wore he wore to his dying day. He wore those thick glasses, a bottle Coke bottle bottom glasses. Wore two hearing aids, and had trouble with his stability. And so my mother says, "Well, she told him. She says, you know, on the other side, you'll you'll see perfectly and you'll hear perfectly." When she was sharing this with me, I said, "And he'll be able to walk without falling down." And she chuckled at that. So. You know, uh, as they say, well, he's in a better place. Well, I, you know, better, worse, it's all relative. But I know that at least he's happy that he's free from that body. And he is now uh, with the one that we refer to as our eldest sister. And I think that that's part. Of, I wonder, is that part of this whole process, too? I'm, I'm going to go back to that uh, lifestyle and dealing with our mortality. That That can weigh on us, too, can't it? It absolutely can. And I think to variable degrees, um, some people are struggling with losing others and some people are dealing with their own, um, you know, own mortality, um, which when you are diagnosed with a chronic condition, I think you have to face that a little more directly. Um, and we also face a lot of uncertainty. Uncertainty is a really big part of what I had to deal with with MS is because it's so variable in terms of its uh, course. Um, and, and we all live with a great deal of uncertainty, but, you know, when you have a chronic condition, it increases that, um, that uncertainty, um, and, and makes us really have to take head on some of those challenges like, uh, you know, our purpose and our mortality and, uh, how, how long we're going to be able to keep doing the things that we find meaning, meaningful. Mm. Finding meaning in one's life and 
Another phrase that I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I'm sure that you've dealt with this, uh, uh, things are pronounced differently in different parts of the world in English. Uh, I love the British who, you know, I need to go to the laboratory to test this. Da, da, da. I'm going to the laboratory. Uh, aluminium. And we say aluminum. Uh, but a lot of folks around the world, they're not looking at disease. They're looking at dis-ease. Have you looked at these kinds of conditions from that standpoint of, okay, what is your, what are you uneasy about? What is your sure. disease? Yeah, no, I think it's important to understand kind of just, that's part of kind of the lifestyle medicine approach is really trying to understand what's driving someone and what is really, what what is causing anxiety, what's causing them to lose sleep, and then also what's helping motivate them to to get up that next day, even though they're in pain or even though they're feeling worried about something um, or feeling really down, they're still getting up and putting one foot in front of the other. So I think that trying to understand and, and, and disease is not just the kind of uh, the behind the scenes pathophysiology of what's happening in your body, but a lot of it is a mental state. And that's what kind of that dis-ease uh, is referring to. If we can get a handle on what's happening with us mentally um, and really try to uh, impact that for the better, um, it can really impact our overall physical health too. There was a, I want to say psychologist, maybe he's more of a philosopher, but he was diagnosed at one point, this is years and years ago. He's written, he re, he's written a number of books, I'm sure, and has since passed, but he was in the hospital diagnosed with whatever it was and given, I think like six weeks to live. And he said, no. So in his hospital room or at his home, he started watching like the Three Stooges and so forth. And he went on to live, I don't know, maybe another 20, 30 years because he said no, which is also what I said to my uh, primary care physician about my blood sugar when he told me, Richard, this is going to be a long road. I said, no, it's not. I know how I got here. It was the pandemic. What did everybody turn to in way of foods during the pandemic? Comfort foods, sugars and carbs. Do you know that my A1C was at 11.2? Wow. Yeah. An average of 220, 275 blood sugar level. And in a month and a half, I brought it down to normal. 5.7 and uh, between uh, 110 and 130. Great. Now, I've got... Yeah. And now I got to figure out, okay, what in the Sam Hill has happened in the last five months, six months that will not allow me to bring it down where I want it. Um, but that is a, a mindset. Do you delve into that at all? I, I, I know you're an MD, you're not a psychologist per se, but do you talk to your patients at all from that perspective saying, look, your attitude is everything. How you perceive what we are discussing here is going to make a big difference in how you deal with it, the treatment, uh, you know, and so forth. Even though, as you've already stated, there's no there's no uh, reversal or cure, if you will, for mus uh, for multiple sclerosis. So I think that attitude is very important. It's important to convey that to patients, but it's also I try not to kind of dictate for them what they need to do. So I wouldn't say you've got to change your attitude. I would really <laughs> kind of try to talk with them about what's driving them, what their concerns are, what their hopes are and their dreams and what's, you know, what's most important to them. What are the most important things in their lives? And then kind of through a process of back and forth, try to help them understand what they need to do to get to where they want to be. So it really needs to come from that individual. It can't come from the doctor. Um, mm. That person has to be able to understand for themselves what's going to help, what's going to make a difference to get them to reach their goals. At the same time, they've got to decide what their goals are, which I know is not part of your job, but I'm sure you might phrase it that way that, you know, you need to kind of focus on what do you want to achieve? What, do you, what what are your goals here? For me, like, for example, with the, the, the type 2 diabetes, I want to get my blood sugar down to normal. He would ask me that several times during the during the process. I said, I just want to get my blood sugar as well as my, my blood pressure down to normal rate. That's all I want. 
as far as the right. medical aspect. Do do some folks have trouble figuring out what their goals, uh, trying to figure out what their goals are? Absolutely. I think that can be really tricky um, as, you know, as sometimes people are so wrapped up in taking care of the day to day. A lot of my patients struggled with um, really significant challenges, even just paying rent um, with getting jobs, with taking care of parents, ailing parents or spouses or children um, and, and couldn't even think about kind of those more long term um, goals that, uh, you know, that you and I have the luxury of, of thinking about. And so I think really helping to address some of those day-to-day challenges was important for me as a physician, but also, you know, when we do have the moment to really go deeper, uh, I do try to probe and say, you know, what was the happiest time in your life? Um, what made that the happiest time in your life? Um, what did you used to want to do when you were growing up? What were you looking forward to about being an adult? Um, and and try to kind of dig into what were some of their motivations earlier on that they may have lost sight of and, you know, when all of these other things came up and kind of clouded their vision of what they wanted for their future. Um, and then we can go back and try to understand, maybe we can recreate some of those. Um, sometimes it's just like a matter of finding connection. We talked about support circles, but connection with other people, that's one of the tenets of lifestyle medicine is really forging, supporting connections with others. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes helping people understand that being connected with others actually reduces your risk of chronic conditions, improves your, your life expectancy. And so if you can, you know, if you've lost a, a friend that, you know, that you or lost touch with a friend that you were close to or have estranged family members that, you know, you may want to reconnect with them. Um, and that can actually, if you can improve those connections, that can really help your health long-term. Talk to me about the impact, the influence, the effect of pets in our lives in this regard. It's funny you ask that because right at my feet, I have my dog <laughs> sleeping <laughs> next to me. <laughs> Uh, pets are wonderful. Um, I've always had pets. Uh, growing up, we had a whole bunch of them. Um, I don't have as many now um, because I don't go to pet stores as much as as little as I can. We we have to get our dog food, obviously. But I really uh, have had only rescue animals as an adult. Um, but I really love having animals in my life. And uh, my dog has has been a, a big challenge at times. Uh, she's she's a rescue animal who loves to escape the yard, but uh, she she's great and she's a lot of good energy. I think that having an animal in your life can be really powerful. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I've had, uh, even though I didn't grow up, for example, most, uh, most kids have uh, dogs or cats. And... Um, uh, my father was not really big into uh, animals uh, in the household. Uh, and I'm not exact. I, I never really did. I, I should have asked him, but I, I didn't. Uh, why? But as I got older, uh, I got married the first time. Uh, my wife came home from San Rafael with a guide dog. And not too long after that, we got a cat and then a second one. Uh, and it was really kind of cool. I will say that when I saw her coming down the gangplank with the dog, I'm going, I'm not getting close to that dog at all. Cause I know <laughs> in about five, uh, seven to 10 years, I know what's going to happen. And I don't want to deal with that, that, that drama. Well, that didn't work. You know, uh, you know, for sure that did not work uh, with my present wife. At one point we had over 40 chickens, 40 hens. Uh, we had um, three dogs and nine cats. Here in Santa Barbara. Oh, oh my gosh. And over the 17 years that we have lived here in Santa Barbara, we now have um, seven chickens, none of which are the originals. Uh, we have, we're down to um, three cats and one dog. So I've been dealing with, of course, that whole issue of um, the, the, uh, the loss of the 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 loss of animals and how close uh how close everyone um how how close you get to uh to animals but you know uh it's worth it 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 really is you know? it is worth it 
I have a chapter in my, in my book talking about the loss of my last dog, uh, which was really hard and actually came amidst seeing patient. <laughs> I was having a, a, seeing a patient who was struggling tremendously at the same time, my husband was at the vet with our dog who was dying and it was, it was heartbreaking. Uh, but, but something that I definitely pushed myself to get through. Um, and you know, you get through it and you never feel quite the same. You always have a hole in your heart after losing an animal that you're close to, but you do have forged new connections. Um, yeah. and we've certainly had that with our newer, newer dog. Well, those, those pathways are so important. Um, I had a dog named, uh, Makushla. She was a beautiful, all white with a pink nose. And I believe she was a shepherd, a husky mix. And she turned into a dog that I always wanted. And that is normally I, we would keep her fenced in, you know, we'd go in the backyard and play and blah, blah, blah. But in the last few years of her life, I would let her out in the front, no fence. She might go wandering off, but if I called her, boom, she came right back or she would follow me when I walked around. And I, I always wanted a dog like that. And that was, that was so cool. Um, when you have an animal that's that, that is that bonded to you. And I've been told by some intuitives that she is still bonded to me on the other side. And she is looking over, she is looking out for me over my right shoulder. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, and, and I'll take that. I will indeed. We're talking with Lisa Doggett. LisaDoggett.com is the website. And once again, that uh, book title happens to be Up the Down Escalator, Medicine, Motherhood, and Multiple Sclerosis. And you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan here with Lisa Doggett. And um, Lisa, I want to thank you for giving us so much time here on the program. I really appreciate uh, uh, your sharing your story, this extraordinary story that people... They need to hear, but they also need to, I want to say they will also need to live uh, what you're talking about, regardless of what their condition is. And we all, we all have conditions It might be physical, mental or emotional, but mm -hmm. it also might be where you live. Maybe it was where you work and it's not a great place to work. I wish I could find another place kind of thing. Uh, maybe it's, I don't know what my life's purpose is. I don't know what my goals are and so on and so forth. And that that's a condition too, uh, searching for. And so I would encourage people to pick up a copy of your book. And again, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story with us. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been great getting to talk to you. I have three final questions that I ask all of my guests that I will ask you. But before I do, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, where we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And uh, we are here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. Uh, we uh, podcast these programs, believe it or not, uh, at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many others. I go fast because there are so many. We're also on YouTube where you can listen to and watch these interviews, get to know our guests in a little bit more in person, if you will. Uh, we ask that you, uh, if not subscribe, uh, click notification so that the next time I post another uh, conversation... You'll be notified and you can listen to said conversation. And um, what else is there? We stream live, of course, with those broadcasts at richarddugan.com. We also ask that if you can support the work we're doing financially, we would be so gratefully appreciative. We have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And we also ask you to spend time going within and listening to that still small voice for guidance. And maybe through that guidance, You'll find the goals you're looking for, the purpose that you've been searching for. And um, let us know. I'd love to receive an email from you. Richard at richarddugan.com is the email address, and uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll respond to it. And uh, thank you so much for being a part of Tell Me Your Story. And with all of that, uh, we go to our final three questions for our guest. And the first of those three is, who is Lisa Doggett? 
Well, that's a hard one to sum up quickly, but um, I am a uh, deeply passionate person uh, committed to helping people who are most vulnerable to live their best lives. I'm also a mom. I'm a healer as a doctor. I'm a wife. I'm a friend. I'm a daughter. Um, and I really care about making the world a better place and have spent my life trying to do that. What is your life's purpose? Again, I think that's a hard thing to sum up quickly, but I would say that I am here to uh, to try to help others to lead their best lives um, and to connect with others in a meaningful way, um, to try to make a difference again. Hmm. And finally, what was your best day? There have been a lot of good days. Um, I think one one best day uh, was when I was married to my husband, Don. Uh, we had been together for nearly 10 years, um, and it was a very joyful occasion. We were married right after 9-11, uh, when a lot of us were struggling with what it, our country had just gone through. Um, and it was later that same month, we brought together friends and family from around the country and celebrated our relationship, um, with all the people we loved best. Um, and it was really a joyful occasion. So that mm. would be one of my best days for sure. Well, once again, Lisa, thank you so much for giving us so much time. And, uh, we look forward to connecting with you down the road to see how things are going and, uh, what new things you've discovered in the new studies that you're in, into. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been great talking with you. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for New World, where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal, Jeanette, I am still listening. Dad, continue to be happy. Doug, I'll see you down the road, my friend.